BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Resolute Square. Welcome to The Zero Line, produced by Resolute Square. I'm Sergeant Sarah Ashton Cirillo of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, and every week we'll be bringing you inside Ukraine's war for liberty and liberation against the Russian enemy, while explaining how a victory by us on the battlefield isn't just vital for the Ukrainian people, but for the world as a whole. We will push back against the lies regarding this war for freedom and take you straight to the front lines of the fight for democracy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Zero Line. I'm Lisa Senecal, Executive Editor of Resolute Square, and I am here with Sarah Ashton Cirillo. Uh, We also have a special guest today. Very, very pleased to welcome Romeo Kokriatsky to the show. Romeo is the Managing Editor at New Voice Ukraine. He's a co-host of Hype Ukraine. Please check both of those out. Ukraine without hype. I'm sorry, Ukraine without hype. Follow them at Twitter, at Hype Ukraine. And Romeo, you are at, straightforward, your name, at Romeo Kokriatsky. And we'll make sure that both of those links are available to you. Romeo, thank you so much for being here. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. You know, Romeo brought up a great point yesterday, and it was something that you and I have addressed, Lisa, for the audience. More Ukrainian voices should be heard. And we had Oleksandr Musienko on. He was supposed to be on again this week. We've been trying to create this outreach. And Romeo, on his Twitter feed, rightfully so, chastised, in a sense, Western media for ignoring Ukrainian voices in order to maybe plug their own agendas or their own brands. And when I saw that post and knew that Alexander couldn't make it, I immediately thought to reach out to Romeo, especially because his knowledge of Ukraine, knowledge of the media sector. And Romeo, if you don't mind this being the first question, what prompted that tweet? And, and what have you seen with the amount of time you've been in Ukraine with, with your family being Ukrainian, your wife, et cetera? Why do you think Ukrainians are being ignored two years into this full scale invasion? Well, to talk about why, uh, like why I tweeted that in the first place, I was just scrolling and I saw this ad, um, submit your questions for our podcast. And it was three hosts standing in front of their logo, Ukraine, something or the other. And I'm one, I was wondering, hmm, what would I ask? And then I was wondering, who, who are these guys? Well, I've never heard of them. You know, like I've been working as a journalist in Ukraine for the past decade. Uh, it's a pretty small crowd. We mostly all know each other. And I'm like, who are these guys? How 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 come I've never heard of them? Uh, so I look them up, and it's just three, like, British guys. No connection to Ukraine, as far as I can tell, beyond the, the vague descriptor of they are journalists. Uh, and I thought to myself, it's surely it's not that hard to find at least one person. I mean, there are complexities in pretty much any situation that you will not understand. A third party will not understand unless someone with personal experience explains it to them. Right. And especially when it comes to war, that, that, that goes double or even triple. Uh, there are nuances. Uh, there are political questions and so on that 
are not completely clear unless you are from there, unless you have experience there. And I was wondering to myself, is it really that hard? I know personally three journalists, three Ukrainian journalists in London right now. Would it really be that difficult to find one of their contacts and be like, hey, we're doing a Ukraine news podcast. Do you want to be a host? It doesn't seem like it's that hard. And as for why it's being ignored, well, I mean, that's really simple. Um, the world is not that interested in, in Ukraine. The world is not interested in our defense against Russian fascism. Um, we can see that clearly through uh, the lack of military aid that we get, the slowness of aid when we do get it, the hand-wringing of, oh, whether we should support them or not. Oh, don't you know they're all correct? It, it, it's just obvious to two, two years on that Ukraine is just not that interesting. Uh, so if you are a reporter who wants to make a name for yourself and you don't really care about one or the other conflict, uh, it, it's an easy way to, to gain relevance. Because for whatever reason, people don't want to listen to Ukrainians, but they'll happily listen to Western journalists explain Ukraine to them, despite the fact that these Western journalists have maybe at best a year or two of experience in the country and not, you know, an entire career uh, like every single Ukrainian journalist. Yeah, it's incredibly uh, important. We really appreciate your voice here also in your publication, which is doing some really phenomenal work. And it is work on the ground um, that we are not getting enough of. Why do you think it is so difficult to get uh, people in the West in particular? You mentioned that getting the funding is so much harder than it should be. Why do you think it's so difficult to get people in the West to understand that this is not just a Ukrainian issue? This is a world stability issue. This is a democracy issue. This does directly affect people in, in throughout Europe and in the States. Most people aren't used to forecasting their political decisions any more than a couple of months out. I mean, look at any uh, public polling taken in the pre-U.S. campaign election season, and you'll see that people all of a sudden will really start caring about the economy or about uh, border security or what have you uh, when that was barely a topic because they it comes up in the news. They see the headline. They start caring. Uh, then whatever the, the big thing, the election or some speech or whatever it is happens, then they go back to their lives for what is going to be what is shaping up to be a pretty long running conflict here. Um, it's, I think, almost impossible to expect people to be engaged while it does affect them, it affects them indirectly. If you're, you know, living in, I don't know, Maryland or Kentucky or something, uh, you might care in the abstract about human rights and democracy and so on. But caring in the abstract doesn't translate to the sustained political pressure that you need in order to actually get uh, legislators to vote for aid packages, as we can see, especially when, I mean, that would go even if, there wasn't an enormous billions of dollars propaganda machine working against us. But when you throw that in the mix, I mean, you end up with this where people are happy to ignore or push aside uh, Ukraine and Ukraine struggles in favor of their own domestic political issues. Speaking of domestic political issues, Romeo, you or, or many Ukrainians would have a unique perspective again, which is why Ukrainian voices are, are so important. When we, as Lisa was just mentioning, over and over at Resolute Square, 
whether it's in our columns, whether it's on the different podcasts with Rick Wilson or Stuart Stevens or, or obviously Zero Line with myself and Lisa, we talk about overarching uh, themes of democracy, uh, anti-autocracy, the need to make certain that we, we have these individual liberties and freedom. Can you explain a little bit, though, to the audience, especially those who haven't been paying attention lately, what's really going on in the ground with Ukrainians, specifically Ukrainian civilians, where while we're thinking of these grand themes, Ukrainians are just trying to stay alive in the face of Russian terrorism? Honestly, it's, it's a little disconcerting when I see people living in much safer countries talk about how like threatened or scared they feel about whatever petty thing occurred to them or in their vicinity. And I'm like, well, that's nice you guys, but it doesn't really matter. I don't know. Maybe that's a, that that's a selfish thing, but I think um, when you have cruise missiles coming down around your ears every other week, uh, you're allowed to be a little selfish. Yeah. Put shit in perspective in a hurry yeah right at the same time and then, and then you have the the counter argument that people go oh well ukrainians clearly don't care about their own war they're all you know i don't know sipping frappuccinos and eating croissants at cafes and something um and it's like yeah well people adapt i don't i don't know what to tell you when something bad happens people adapt to that bad thing and then try to continue living because we're humans that's Almost the definition of human is adapting to a bad situation as best you can. The fact that people are unable to empathize even a little bit, it's disappointing, but it's not especially surprising. I'm glad you mentioned the <laughs> sipping frappuccino idea because it is such an act of defiance and resistance to continue to attempt to carry on a normal life in the face of what's happening. It is such a show of incredible strength among the Ukrainian people that they are going to carry on. At yesterday, or I guess it was the day before and reported yesterday, when Ron Johnson, Senator Ron Johnson, um, made this insane statement about how, you know, we just need to deal with the fact that Putin is not going to lose. And, you know, give up that fight in Ukraine. He completely opposes the funding. Um, and, you know, what we really need to be doing is trying to bring Putin in and and deal with him. And I had a lot of reactions to that. But one of them was, what unbelievable arrogance for an American, I don't care what your status is, to decide for the Ukrainian people that their struggle is over. Like, that is not the United States decision to make. Can, can you give us a sense of on the ground where the people in Ukraine are at? Because they're certainly not where Ron Johnson is. I mean, no, we're not going to give up. There's no really, when I hear people, oh, you know, if uh, we withdraw aid, the war will be over. Yeah, I'll be dead. Um, the war will be over. That's because uh, there's going to be a couple of million people that are dead. <laughs> That's the, yeah. Well, when you kill all uh, everyone you want to kill, turns out the war is over because everyone's dead now. It's it's not it's not rocket science. It's really really uh, annoying <laughs> to consistently encounter the same argument over and over that oh um, we shouldn't be funding foreign wars. Or 
uh, we shouldn't be getting involved or uh, the, 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 it's not our problem or what have you. Because, uh, like you said, if you forecast out, if you let a dictator set the precedent that conquering countries is fine, um, guess what? You don't have a peaceful world anymore. I mean, we, we can see uh, whatever post-World War II peace we had is fraying at the seams. We can see China uh, making ever more threatening territorial claims on Taiwan. Uh, like, we, we, we can see that all over the world there are these regional conflicts propping up uh, because people feel emboldened. Uh, bad actors feel emboldened when they aren't punished, when they aren't, uh, when they don't encounter resistance, or when that resistance is token or half-hearted. They feel emboldened to act because, like any bully, if you don't push back, uh, they just feel like they have the right and the obligation to continue harassing. I'm go- I'm going to switch gears here for a second, Romeo and Lisa, but something that the three of us have great passion for, which is uh, media, free speech, uh, the fourth estate. So uh, to plug again, you're managing editor of New Voice Ukraine, which is a part of a conglomerate that also has Ukrainian language uh, news uh, outlets. Resolute Square and New Voice Ukraine have something very similar in common, which is a, a truly deep well of columnists, though, and opinion writers, in addition to the fact that you are a news outlet. When you bring these people on, when, when you find these opinion writers, what have you noticed in the sense of free speech? Do they feel that they can write about, within the, within the parameters of you being the managing editor, but do they feel they can write about whatever they need to under uh, Ukraine in 2024, under martial law, under President Zelensky's government, because that too is one of the areas we hear a lot of lies about coming from the likes of Tucker Carlson, uh, you know, J.D. Vance and others, where they go ahead and, and they try to claim that there's a, a culling of free speech. What's your view on that? I mean, I can tell you I've never once even considered uh, the question when when a columnist submits uh, an article for me, I've never ever thought, huh? What? Well, maybe there. What, what could be objectionable in here? Like that's not something considered because, well, in Ukraine we have a free press and people write whatever they want and they're happy to do it. Uh, it's one of the fundamental differences between us and Russia, is that Ukrainians are very loud. As the joke, to paraphrase a joke, you ask three Ukrainians their opinion, you'll get five different answers. It's always been a facet of kind of just Ukrainian culture in general and uh, the way Ukrainians see the world. We're very uh, loud. We have very strong opinions and we're happy to share those opinions <laughs> with anyone willing to listen. The, there's always a line in war specifically where um, you want to report honest information. Uh, but at the same time, especially if you're Ukrainian, I can't speak for the Many Western journalists that have ignored this little maxim, um, but you don't want your side to lose. I say side. This isn't a sports game. This isn't like a, a, a abstract contest. This is a, a life and death struggle. But you want your country to survive, right? That's kind of the the, the whole thing. Uh, when you're a journalist and you're writing, you always you do have to keep in mind what can I write that won't impact the war in a negative sense, right? Uh, because this is an all-encompassing. Uh, the information domain is just as important as sea or air or land, um, possibly in a few aspects even more important since uh, we are dependent on foreign aid and 
opinion, public opinion in Western democracies drives whether we get that foreign aid or not, uh, as we can see now. So you you want to present the information in a way that won't damage you, but at the same time, I wouldn't say that I've ever felt a need to censor myself. It's more like making sure that you aren't compromising anyone, making sure that you're not um, exposing anything that the enemy, who can also read just like you can, uh, gains any new information, and making sure that everything you report is, as always, above board and verifiable. Of course, if you ignore those things, you can run into issues. But that's not even censorship as much as just being aware and being uh, considerate of the fact that you are, uh, like it or not, a participant in a war. That's what every journalist is in Ukraine, regardless of how they themselves feel about it, because that's the nature of being invaded, and that's the nature of information warfare. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm going to literally plagiarize that statement uh, and bring it to Stratcom uh, tomorrow in my meeting and uh, say that we need to start reminding, uh, especially the Western journalists, that if they're on the ground there, they are uh, here, I should say, because I'm just yeah, a few this hours isn't, away from There you. is no They're participants in the war. Yeah, the, like there's that. no objective side. I don't know. It's like being objective towards the Nazi regime. Oh, well, you know, Hitler did a lot of bad things. Yeah, you stop there. You don't continue that sentence. You don't say, but, however, though, but maybe you think about it. No, you just stop there. And when it comes to the struggle between authoritarianism and democracy, every member of the democratic world, every person who considers themselves a free citizen is pretty much obligated to resist authoritarianism because if you don't, your country's next. That's that's the way the nature of it, it's the nature of totalitarianism itself. Warlords see that they can easily grab power, so more war, warlords are, are emboldened to grab more power, and on and on uh, until <laughs> you have something like Russia. And when you're a Western journalist reporting on Ukraine, you're not just reporting on some foreign con conflict between people who speak funny over there somewhere you're reporting on what could be the opening battle uh to decide whether the 21st century is going to continue developing and progressing in a way that promotes liberty or if we're all going to go back to the medieval ages where we were all slaves to lords and nobles what you're saying is so important for western journalists to grasp it's a source of constant frustration among you know, folks in Roosevelt Square and pro-democracy people in the United States that our media still has not caught up to the idea that there are not two equal sides. There, there are not two legitimate conversations to be having here that you can do both sidesism on whether it we're talking about democracy in the United States and the threat that Donald Trump and the MAGA movement poses or we're talking about Putin and Russia versus Ukraine 
there are not two sides, two reasonable sides to these stories that both need to be told objectively because one side is objectively wrong. One side's just obviously the bad guys. You don't really even have to think hard about it. You don't have to go, huh, well, let's look into the the nuances of their tax program or whatever. No, you just look at Russia. You look at anything a Russian politician has said ever in the past 30 years, uh, and you'll find something objectable and evil and imperialist about it because that's the nature of the Russian Federation. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. You know, we certainly have a lot of Russian propaganda that makes it into the United States and then finds its way into far right wing media and then moves its way into more mainstream talking points there. The Russians are very good at this. Do you feel as though any of that messaging seeps in effectively in Ukraine? It may have done prior to the full scale invasion and There are like panics, there are paranoias that come out, but I think they would come out regardless of the propaganda. The fact is that once the Russia, once Putin decided to fully conquer Ukraine, every Ukrainian made a conscious choice to disassociate themselves from Russia entirely, even if they had lingering feelings or doubts or or, uh, leanings towards Russia or quote unquote, the Russian world, Russian values or whatever the hell it is. That's gone. <laughs> you can't bomb a people constantly every day, raise cities to the ground, murder hundreds of thousands, and then expect your messaging to to be uh, that effective in that populace. It's just not. Um, even people who would be, let's say, ideolog- ideologically aligned with Russia are making an effort to distance themselves as far as possible from it. Let's jump to the military uh, question regarding Russia at the moment. Lisa and I were just talking about uh, one of your articles in New Voice Ukraine this morning regarding the increase, uh, I guess, that just took effect in Russia through the Duma. It's been signed into law, uh, pushing the age of contract soldiers to age 65, officers to age 70. For perspective, in Ukraine, uh, age 60 is the cutoff without getting special dispensation. What does this portend? I mean, they, they're they running out of people. One of the biggest, I, I think, honestly, what we're seeing is the ongoing consequence of Putin's three-day special military operation, where they dedicated an immense amount of their best guys, the most experienced, most well-equipped, uh, best trained troops in landings in Khastomel, um and uh, Vasilkiv, which they all just got slaughtered repeatedly, repeatedly until they finally decided, hey, maybe we should stop doing that. But by the time they decided, they'd run out of almost everything. I remember during the occupation of Kherson hearing about them uh, sending training officers from deep within Russia themselves 
to Kirson to uh, maintain the occupation because they didn't have anyone else because everyone else was dead. Obviously, they, they will need to keep whoever is alive uh, as uh, in service as long as possible because they don't have any other options. You can't run a military if uh, everyone who knows how anything works is dead. I remember going uh, during the Kharkiv counteroffensive and in one of their infamous torture chamber areas, they also lived in, near one of the cities by Izum. And you were saying, anybody who knows anything. And one thing that jumped out at me was there was a poster from 1974, 1975. It was in Russian, showing them how to uh, assemble an AK-74, showing them how to uh, apply a landmine. And it was there in the barracks, a, a 50-year-old poster showing these, these conscripts, or, or maybe they were Storm Group Z, whoever they were, the, the convicts how to even assemble their rifles, which matches up exactly what you've just told our audience here at Resolute Square today. Yeah, we know um, for a fact, for example, that uh, a Russian conscript has uh, been shipped out after five days of quote-unquote training. Um, I'm not sure how much training you can get in five days uh, before being shipped out to the front lines uh, because they need bodies. They're not very picky about what those bodies are capable of. They just need human meat to work over to hopefully preserve waste Ukrainian firepower on that and preserve the precious lives of their soul, of their officer class. Which again, they don't really have a lot of anymore, except for either the very, very old and most corrupt guys that are still in Russia proper um, or young guys that they had to promote uh, way ahead of schedule because all of their older colleagues were already dead. There is such a compelling story of Ukrainian success to be told in what you both are talking about, that that we have in the United States this um, drumbeat of the invincibility of Vladimir Putin and Russia this is not a strong country with a strong military. If they had a moderately strong military two years ago, they don't any longer, or they wouldn't be hiring as many, you know, they now have to pay people to come from other countries to fight for them because they're running out of Russian bodies to be able to throw in front of bullets and mortars. <laughs> so, Plus, you don't have to pay uh, bereavement benefits to families of foreign uh, foreign mercenaries saves a lot of money in the pension budget. Right. Well, I hadn't hadn't even considered that. One of the main things about Russia is, however cynical and depraved they are, go two or three levels below that, and you'll reach an approximation of the Russian mindset. No, oh, that's terrific. <laughs> it is. It really is. Last week, we referenced uh, Lisa called Tucker Carlson an ass clown. I referenced him as an enemy of humanity and a court eunuch of the Kremlin. You watched, as many people did. Uh, maybe you watched it all. Maybe you watched clips. No, no, I made my uh, I made my podcast co-host watch it, <laughs> and then give me the <laughs> and then give me the highlights. Good for you. I I don't have the mental capacity to listen to either Putin or Carlson's voice for longer than a thirty second YouTube clip. So. What what would you say about Resolute Square's least favorite ass clown, Tucker Carlson, <laughs> and his 
jaunt over to uh, between the legs of, of, of Vladimir Putin. And what do you make of that whole fiasco, that whole PR stunt? The, the funniest takeaway probably for me is how it was a propaganda failure for them, um, for, for Tucker, probably for a lot of American Nazis. It did not go the way they wanted, uh, which obviously I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy about. At the same time, it's Carlson is, is trying to play a, a dollar store Walter Durante, and he doesn't really have the chops to pull it off. The man is just he's not an especially curious person. And to even pretend to be a journalist, to even be a good propagandist, you need to at least feign curiosity about things. Um, so you can then push your own line. You do need to sell that you're genuinely like interested in something, um, which Carlson cannot do, is, is incapable of it. His worldview fundamentally abhors curiosity. It abhors uh, development. It, it abhors change of any sort. So he he is really only capable of reading uh, two or three phases on flashcards that he scribbled down. And if you deviate from that, even if you are his dream, I mean, let's be real. This was probably the, the going to be the highlight of Tucker Carlson's career uh, interviewing Vladimir Putin during the war. I mean, could have gone down in the history books as a legendary, but Carlson is fundamentally incapable of providing that sort of experience. That's real. He's he's a good demagogue, but he's not a good propagandist. Uh, and that was absolutely on show in Moscow that night. <laughs> Which, you know, that's uh, good for us. <laughs> I would rather my enemies be stupid and competent than the, uh, than the alternative, after all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Carlson, the degree to which he showed that he's willing to be publicly humiliated and take it was, I mean, I don't have a single good thing to say about Vladimir Putin, but I could certainly appreciate the public humiliation of someone like Tucker Carlson. And and what it really exposed was the the willingness to not push back on anything and to grovel. I mean, there was just nothing journalistic about uh, laughing off personal insults and degradation. And the, he was the, the there quip, for it. <laughs> that quip <laughs> of uh, making fun of uh, Carlson's failed CIA bid um, yeah. was, <laughs> <laughs> it was good. Again, Putin, literally my mortal enemy. Um, but I will say that was, that was good. Romeo, quick question. I saw the other day, uh, so I'll give a little background to the listeners. There are many ethnic groups within the Russian Federation. One of the ethnic groups are Buryats. Buryats do not look uh, in the same way as uh, Euro-Asian uh, Russians do. They they, they look more uh, East Asian in, in a sense. And there was Tucker, I guess it's a real photo. Maybe you can shed light on it. Dressed in basically culturally appropriating the Buryat outfit because he was made to and then a photo was taken and published in russia and was that photo real did, did he really dress in the traditional Buryat costume i have no idea it wouldn't surprise me regardless of whether the photo is real or not again i have I've no clue maybe it was photoshopped maybe not it wouldn't it, it's the kind of the kind of thing a um prepackaged russian like government tour group would make someone do 
because for for them and Russia loves talking about all of its minorities, but they treat minorities the same way they were treating the Soviet Union in that um, you can have your uh, one ethnic dish and your silly little costumes and your cute little folksy dances. But when it comes to serious business, real business, you speak Russian, uh, you name your kids the Russian way. If you don't, uh, they'll be discriminated against if they ever want a job or to go to a good university. Uh, basically, you have to be as Russian as possible, except in this one one tiny way, uh, which is something I think Tucker probably or Carlson probably agrees with 100 percent. He, as we know from his own uh, programs, he's not a real big fan of minorities or integration or any of the cosmopolitan liberal values that America was founded on. Not a fan of those things. Um, so he probably feels quite comfortable when minorities are basically made out to be dancing puppets and little ups. I'm going to repeat this for the audience. Our guest just stated that Tucker Carlson is most likely comfortable with minorities being dancing puppets. I have to concur with that, Romeo. I've never seen evidence to suggest otherwise. No, I mean, it, isn't that pretty typical of a, a white nationalist? And yeah, uh, he he hates women. He hates. They have a pretty odious ideology. Yeah. Honestly, I can't really. I I never really understand what the draw of these people are. What the draw of people like Trump or Putin or anyone who talks about traditional values or whatever. I I don't really understand the draw. Um, you look at history; it's pretty clear that those things are explicitly used by tyrants and dictators to manipulate people into dying in senseless conflicts. Almost exclusively, that's what these so-called values have been used for. So it's really hard for me to see what the value in it is, but I guess other people disagree. The reason that they need to be tyrants and dictators and want to be authoritarian leaders like Trump is that that isn't embraced by the majority of the population, right? It's true. It's, you have to force this upon people. And if you allow them to function in a working democracy, then your agenda of having this narrow little slice of the population have all of the power and be able to wield that over the masses, you can't let the masses have a, a voice and any control in your country i agree i think that's honestly possibly one of the reasons uh trump is so popular because if you had a more coherent authoritarian a smarter authoritarian who could pursue policies um in a collected way and not based on the fact that they have the temperament of a five-year-old is that people would feel would be able to concretely feel those effects and, and concretely uh associate the, that person's motives with the policies that pursuing Trump is too chaotic. He's too, he's too much of a child. You look at him and it's hard to imagine that he's a human adult with full agency. He kind of seems like uh, just someone shoved a toddler in a fat suit and waited a couple of years. And as a result, you can project your own uh, desires onto him. If you had someone smarter, someone capable of speaking in just simply coherent sentences, uh, you you lose that ambiguity that allows you to project whatever you want on on this bully. Um, and yes, then at that point, the tyrants realize, oh, we're not as popular as we thought. We're only popular with this really, really weird demographic of guys who have never 
uh, seen the sun or gone outside or spoken to a human female. And it turns out that's not that's not the only electorate you need in a democracy. You need more than that. Right. So you keep people from voting. <laughs> so you keep people from voting. Yeah. If you don't have a democracy, then you don't need more than that, I suppose. <laughs> Without getting into the specifics, meaning uh, the we, we know all about Trump. We know all about the attacks against President Biden. Without getting into the specifics, do you believe democracy can be uh, can be upheld in November of 2024? Will democracy prevail over fascism, over autocracy, over tyranny and despotism? I mean, I certainly hope so. To be honest, uh, legally, the answer is quite clear. Um, There are literal safeguards built into the Constitution to prevent convicted criminals from holding the highest court of the land for crimes that they committed in office i mean constitutionally trump trump can't run um whether all whether that will be ignored or uh justified around or um simply thrown out is an entirely different question um but at the very least there are structures and institutions in place that exist that are meant to prevent this exact scenario from happening um, I sincerely hope they will be, but the problem with all these institutions and rules and, and um, backstops and whatnot is that they rely on people to actually implement them. If you don't have people that believe in these things, if you don't have people that are willing to stand up, uh, that are willing to push these values as fundamental, then people will do whatever they want because these aren't, you know, these aren't physical laws of the universe, right? Um, they depend on all of us deciding that these things matter. Um, so I sincerely hope that people will decide that it does matter whether America is uh, remains a democracy or is ruled by a five-year-old uh, neo-Nazi. I, I really hope people make that choice. I'm pretty sure most of the people I know will make the, the right choice, uh, but it's uh, obviously hard to tell. We haven't even started looking into what Russia will do to interfere in the election this time. Um, I mean, they've consistently interfered for the past couple of elections. It's doubtless that they're going to just sit this one out, uh, and that will absolutely play a role as well. So if you and I, if your audience, if people of, as they say, good conscience aren't um, completely committed to ensuring that our uh, basic standards of decency and, and liberty and just humanity are upheld, uh, then yeah, we're we're kind of all screwed. But I, I like to think that there's just enough people to to keep that from happening. Maybe there there's not an overwhelming majority, but I'd like to believe that they're just enough <laughs> to keep us somewhat somewhat all right. I'm gonna grab on to that uh, sentiment. I do believe there are enough, and and I believe that they can be motivated and kind of looping back to where you started. You mentioned early on in the conversation that people have a tendency not, not to tune in and pay attention until you get very close to elections. I hope that is not when we decide to start supporting Ukraine again the way we need to, because that's too far down the road. Um, so I hope that gets forced through quickly and that they take up this bill in the House today. But I do believe in the long term, when we get closer to the election, America is going to get there. Americans are going to stand up um, and and protect our democracy. We have to. 
Yeah, we have to. That's the thing. There's not a lot of alternative. There really, really isn't. Uh, for Ukrainians, I think this is especially visible. All we have to do to understand what it is to live under a totalitarian government, well, besides ask our parents and grandparents or sometimes ask ourselves, um, because the Soviet Union wasn't that long ago, um, but it's to to just look across the fence and see the just insane repression that Russia has, the utterly absurd and inhuman values that their government promotes um, to, to know that that's not, no one should be forced to live like that. Like really it's, it's not, it's not something any human should have to go through to, to live in a country where you cannot um, express really your, your emotions or your feelings to live in a country where violence is not only not punished, but encouraged. Uh, no one, no one should have to live like this, and the only way to prevent it is to ensure that democracy survives, that we all continue having a voice to influence our own lives. This is 20 years of the Orange Revolution, which saw the Ukrainian people stop uh, the Russian puppet Yanukovych from taking office. He eventually took office. It happens to be the 10th anniversary of the Revolution of Dignity, also known as the Maidan Revolution. And now we are going into 10 years of war, uh, Ukraine fighting against Russia's occupation, two years of full-scale war. The Ukrainian people, more than any other in the modern uh, time frame of of post-Soviet era, has fought to maintain democracy, maintain freedom. You mentioned that understanding what totalitarianism is very clear to Ukrainians. What message could you give to listeners elsewhere in the world, United States, Canada, Western Europe, meaning France, Germany, et cetera, for them to understand just how dangerous it is and what they can learn from Ukrainians? Honestly, the best way, I think, is not even to look at Ukrainians, but to look at marginalized minorities in their own countries. Because in a lot of cases, marginalized minorities uh, face very similar threats to living under a totalitarian nation. Now, that's not to say America is a fascist country. That's obviously ridiculous. It's it's just not. It's it's not. It's not even China. <laughs> Whereas you can say, oh, China's not fascist. It's just oppressive. The U.S. doesn't even have that level of control over its own citizens. It's just not. But at the same time, there you have populations like African Americans who have been surveilled constantly. Um, Muslim Americans who've had their uh, cultural spaces infiltrated by government agents, and you apply that to yourself. It's one thing to say, oh, well, maybe they're all terrorists, maybe they're all criminals. But if you apply that to your own life, where you never know whether um, there is a government agent uh, in your church, at your kids' schools, what they're telling you, what they're telling people, um, neighbors reporting. You, you, if you imagine the the experience of these marginalized communities in the West, and then you imagine it's happening to you because that's what totalitarian wants to do, right? It wants to make everyone who is not the the elite rulers feel marginalized. That's literally how they gain power. That would honestly probably be the, the only way that uh, a person who is not a member of those marginalized communities would be able to empathize. Because to be frank, Ukraine is too far. Um, it is too far. Our culture is different. Our language is different. Um, we can do as much outreach as we want, and it is effective, 
but at the end of the day, people understand things closest to home best of all. Um, that's just true of everyone. That's true of humanity in general. So think, do you want to live wondering if everyone is reporting on you, if your buddy's going to get arrested for basically no reason the next day, if that's the kind of life that you want to live, then Moscow has pretty much an open immigration policy for Westerners. You can move tomorrow. Otherwise, yeah, you, you don't really have much of a choice. That's powerful advice. I hope people listen to that and and really take it to heart because what you're saying about a totalitarian state marginalizing everyone, um, people who currently support this authoritarian push need to understand just because you're voting for it doesn't mean you do well under it. It's bad for everybody. You just don't know it yet. So exactly. I, I, I really hope people take to heart what you just said. I'm, I'm smiling because I had touted Romeo as being somebody who doesn't hold back. And Romeo brought it today. And so I, I, I concur with you that Romeo's not just understanding but willingness to punch back oftentimes is, is what's missing, especially within Western media. And, and here's a man who clearly is not afraid to punch back and explain directly that democracy is at risk and only the people themselves can save it. And, and that's uh, Romeo's message today just was driven home. And so I concur, Lisa, he has to come back on. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, New Voice Ukraine. Uh, Romeo's uh, newspaper, he's managing editor. And why don't you take a moment or two to explain a little bit about your podcast, Romeo, so the listeners of, of Zero Line and Resolute Square's podcasts can tune in and, and know what to expect from you. Sure. I uh, co-host a podcast called Ukraine Without Hype with uh, my buddy Anthony Bardaway. We're both journalists. We've been in Ukraine for quite a while. Um, and we do the news, a little bit of analysis. Uh, we try to tackle stories that are big in Ukraine, but perhaps um, underreported on in the Western media, or just deep dives of complicated topics in Ukraine that you, you people need a guy to, to to really understand. They need some someone to really break it down for them, and that's what we try to provide. So, if you like Ukraine news, if you like just learning about um, weird political things and uh, hearing me dis <laughs> and my buddies discuss it, uh, please feel free to tune in. Um, we put out an episode every Wednesday or so. So, yeah, check us out anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you again, Romeo. Thank you for listening to The Zero Line, a podcast brought to you by Resolute Square. Resolute Square's mission is to inform, lead, and connect. And The Zero Line is one of the tools that followers of Resolute Square can use to fight back against tyranny while championing democracy. Please like and subscribe to The Zero Line wherever you podcast and follow us on Twitter at Resolute Square or visit ResoluteSquare.com. Thanks once more for hanging out at The Zero Line.